Hello and welcome to Living Wow Feminist. Living Wow Feminist is a weekly podcast talking with feminists about the ups and downs, ins and outs, and the emotional rollercoaster ride of living a feminist life. I'm your host, feminist writer, researcher, and author, Jen Thorpe. Today on the podcast, I'm speaking with Michelle Edwards. Michelle is a writer and the editor-in-chief of the PR and content marketing team at Showmax. She graduated with a Bachelor of Journalism in 2005, and after that, she began her journeys around the world, living in Taiwan, the UK, South Africa, and Zambia. Writing has always been a part of Michelle's life and career. She's worked as an indie bookseller, authored a textbook on human and social development, worked in the media industry as a sub-editor, and gone freelance. She's taken short story writing courses through the London School of Journalism and two masterclasses in creative writing with Claire Strombeck and Mike Nichol. These courses have certainly borne fruit. In 2020, Michelle published her first novel, Go Away Birds, which was long listed for the Denan Debut Fiction Award in 2018. When she's not working in marketing or writing her second novel very, very slowly, Michelle spends her time boating with her children, trying to train her boisterous puppy, reading feminist romantic fiction, and doing the New York Times crossword puzzles. Michelle's essay in Living Well Feminist is called The Litany, which is a memoir piece detailing moments in time of crossing paths with the patriarchy and the way it can strip you of your voice and at times your sense of self. Today, I'm going to be talking with Michelle about her first novel, Go Away Birds, and her piece in Living Well Feminist. Welcome to the podcast, Michelle. Thank you so much, Jim. Thanks for having me. Well, let's start with your piece in Living Well Feminist, which is called, appropriately, The Litany. How did this piece come about? And for listeners who haven't read it, can you tell them a little bit about what it deals with? It's very difficult for me to think about how it came about, because it was one of those pieces that I wrote from start to finish in one shot and it required, I did very little editing on it. It just kind of came out in this like really organic, beautiful, almost stream of consciousness. Um, it starts with a moment that I remember very clearly from when I was 12 um, of being in a class of all girls, I went to an all girls convent school for primary school and the subject that we were learning about at this time was adolescence and I was called up in front of the class to demonstrate that people develop at different times. I had no beams at all and I was used as the example of like, look, Michelle is clearly not hit adolescence but so-and-so clearly has and it was just such a terribly terribly embarrassing moment I mean we're so sensitive at that time of our lives anyway but looking back at it I just I know it's something I'll always remember but I'm sure that it's something that my peers don't remember at all and the teacher who allowed this to happen probably didn't doesn't remember it at all and that's the case with all the little moments I write about in the litany um, every single one of those moments is something that has stood out for me. But the thing is that they're not extraordinary moments necessarily. It's not, these were not violent moments that, you know, it's not this kind of, there's nothing 
extremely jarring about any of them if you were anyone else other than the person who is kind of the subject of the male gaze or you know the person that this kind of moment is happening to and yeah I think it's basically the message is that we're so vulnerable as women or as humans who identify as women just being out just yeah like I said, having the audacity to walk around in a body and constantly feeling like your body is not your own or that it's only got value or has more value as something that other people see as opposed to the body, you know, the flesh that you live in, I think. Yeah, and it was so interesting because it, the first the section from when you were twelve reminded me of the same similar time when I was in junior school and we had a teacher. I'm not sure what the purpose was, but we had to weigh ourselves in front of the whole class. Every single member of the co-ed class went up to weigh themselves at the front of the class, and this resulted in much mockery and bullying amongst people, you know, both girls and boys. And and it was interesting to me that. In your piece, you talk a little bit about how both girls and boys, both women and men, sort of normalize this behavior. And I think many listeners will relate to the experience you detail of being outraged by the behavior of boys and men and other girls at times. And having other people in the vicinity of this bad behavior act as if nothing out of the ordinary was going on or living with a sense of boys will be boys. What do you think we can do about this normalization of everyday patriarchy and what have what have you concluded about its role in the world now as an adult? I can talk from the perspective of a parent in this regard, I think. Um, this is something that I'm constantly, constantly on the lookout for, especially in relation to, you know, in, in settings where my children are aware of this kind of imbalance, the way that women's bodies are seen. And it comes through in so many things even for very young children and it just it drives me a little insane I mean, my daughter's only just turned mine and a lot of the stuff that she's reading a lot of shows she watches on tv this kind of pervasive everyday sexism it just it comes through even you know in really tiny little moments um so what i can do and i think what other parents can do is just be really vigilant about it to you know you can't scream everything your children watch or read but i think it's it's good to keep the dialogue open which is something that i'm doing with my daughter and increasingly with my son who's six hmm. but um but I, i'm not i'm not sure what we can do in our own lives because it is so pervasive i'm hoping that things are changing um you know a lot of these memories are from Kind of the you know the late 90s in south africa i think we are we're getting there we're coming a long way but i actually i'm afraid i have no like major pieces of advice about how we can change this i think it's going to be a very very slow process and i think change will come in small incremental ways mm, and i think with you you're right. I mean, you, your kids are young, nine and six. To start at that age means that you need to be aware of it from that age, and that vigilance is like a twenty-four-seven job for you. 
Um, I remember yeah. I watched a movie about or a documentary about women in the media industry and they were talking to a particular actress, Gina Davis, and she said she just sits on the couch and watches the television with her kids. And instead of reacting, she'll ask them, you know, why do you think that the girl spoke to the boy in that way? Or what do you think they were trying to say when they made, you know, asking them to think critically about what they're watching rather than telling them what's right and wrong to think. And um, which I thought was yeah. an interesting approach to it because it definitely removes any of that defensiveness that kids can have in adolescence yeah. and that I would have had in adolescence had my mom told me, you know, you shouldn't be watching this no. series. That's really <laughs> sexist. I would have been like, whatever, mom. <laughs> Exactly, that, that can make them want to watch it more exactly. because it's like a rebellious act. Mm. But yeah, I definitely, I mean, my daughter's really into the series of books called Dork Diaries. And I, I mean, yeah, I really, I don't really like them, but she absolutely loves them. And a lot of them are about girls having crushes on boys and girls being pitted against each other, you know, in their bid for attention from a particular boy. And I just constantly keep trying to talk to her about what that means and why that happens. And yeah, as you were saying, like, what do you, yeah, what do you think this means? And would you react this way? Why do you think this character reacted that way? So I do actually read all of her books before she reads them. I don't watch all her TV with her. That's a huge task if she reads anything as much as you do. <laughs> You're going to have a lot of books to read in your future. <laughs> yeah. Luckily, it's still quite slow, so I can, kind of, I can get ahead of it a little bit. <laughs> so I was actually going to ask you about having kids anyway, um, but now that they've come up, what do you think having kids has taught you about being a feminist? And what do you think being a feminist has made you think about being a parent? The number one thing, I think, I was actually thinking about this this morning, um, is for me being a feminist as a parent means kind of demanding sounds too strong but that's kind of what it is demanding that my co-parent does 50 percent of childcare. it's not always possible but we have very clearly defined sort of it's the thing with parenting especially small kids is so much of it is it's practical you know, we can talk about these cerebral things, but so much of raising kids is practical, everyday tasks and insisting that we do the same amount of work for and with the kids is a, a really something I feel really strongly about, not just for myself in my relationship, but I see it happening so often with my friends where they don't have this kind of 50-50 share in childcare. And it really, really, I think, sends a message obviously to the kids that oh mom mom's job is whatever mom's job is getting me dressed and brushing my teeth but dad's job is sitting in front of a computer working um I, which i think is, is not not great and you know, obviously they are stay-at-home moms and it is a choice that they've made and i think that's just so wonderful but i think if you have two parents both of them are working full-time I think it really is important that you both do where possible an equal amount of work because it sends messages to both your girl children and your boy children about what it is to be a parent and I think what having kids has taught me about feminism is that there's so much of it that is not what you would think like I've 
went into parenting being really, really kind of strongly passionate about sending the message to both my daughter and my son that girls and boys can like whatever they want to like. They can, you know, colors is a silly thing, but it comes up so often with, with kids because, you know, the media, toy companies, stores, advertising, everything supports, seems to support this idea that girls are, you know, pink and passive and butterflies and boys are active and brave and superheroes. So I went into parenting my daughter and my son with very strong ideas about sending the message to them and, you know, letting them sort of absorb the message that whatever they want to like, whatever they want to do is fine. Like there's no such thing as a boy's colour, there's no such thing as a girl's whatever, toy, movie. But somehow I've I've ended up with two children who really fall very, very firmly in those in the kind of predefined stereotypical categories of what a little girl this is what a little girl likes. My daughter really, really loves all that stuff. This is what a boy likes. My son is really into superheroes. There's a little overlap between them but but not a huge amount and I think it's really interesting. So I think what being a parent is talking as a feminist is that it's just reinforced for me that all of this is a choice and that is what is important. You know, we part of me also wants to kind of think that women who wear a lot of makeup and spend an hour every morning doing their hair, an hour when they could be sleeping or an hour when they could be working, you know, so they could be making themselves healthier by sleeping longer or exercising, for example, or they could be helping to make themselves more successful by spending an extra hour working. I want to, you know, I kind of want to think, why do you, you know, how can you sacrifice an hour where you could be doing either one of those things to just to change, you know, just to make yourself look more accessible in this kind of very, you know, um, unequal sort of gaze you know, the, the standards for the way women are supposed to look, obviously very different the way men are supposed to look. But having having kids has taught me as a feminist that I just need to keep remembering that the important thing is choice and being able to choose. And I have to keep reminding myself that women who want to spend that hour in the morning making themselves look a certain way, yes, maybe it is within this patriarchal framework, but it's their choice and that's what matters. Yeah, I mean, it is a difficult one, I think, for people. I mean, I'm also not a makeup wearer. I dry my hair at night because I hate sleeping with wet hair. That's about it <laughs> that you're going to get from me. But I think for people, for many, many women listening, they won't relate to that idea. Like, it's part of who they are. And it's also a part of performance that they have control over. Um, so I think that's really interesting learnings that your kids have managed to teach you already in these short years. I'm sure that there will be more, many more lessons to go. Yeah, I'm, I'm so, I'm, I'm just really looking forward to seeing how my daughter is going to grow up and how she's, what she's going to be like as a tween and a teen. Because despite, you know, no matter what they learn from their parents, their kids, especially at that age, their peers are the most sort of important people in their lives. They're the people that they learn from. And I think they're growing up in a very different world to the world we grew up in. I think things have come a long way and it's 
yeah, it'll be really interesting to see if anything, if she, if I feel like she's going through the same things that I went through, like I've detailed in, in the litany. It'll be interesting. From parenting to career and writing, it's always been a large part of your life and career. When did you know that you were going to be a writer? I'm not sure I ever thought that I would be a writer. I, I don't think I knew until probably until university that there was a way you could write and and make kind of a, you know, make a living out of writing. I'd only ever really thought of like being an author, which wasn't something I thought I would pull off, or a, or a reporter, which was also something I didn't ever feel like I would be able to do. I don't think I'm brave enough to be a serious reporter. Um, so I think the idea of writing as a living, like actually being able to write and make a living from it, was only something I was aware of the possibility of probably in university. Um, but I remember when I was about, probably about seven or eight, I got this idea that, you know, I probably would never be able to be an author, but what would be really cool is if I was an author's typist. So I would get to like type up books for an author and I would be the first person to read the book. And that to me was like the idea of making a living through reading. And my parents were like, yeah, that sounds great. And I was just thinking, why did they never say, well, why don't you just try to be an author? Why don't you actually try to be the person who's writing this stuff? I mean, at least they were supportive, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So then what, what sparked the switch? I mean, you've been doing a lot of um, editing, sub-editing work. And then what sparked you to go on to the writing courses that you've been on? Um, the short story course I did through the London School of Journalism was I did that while I was teaching and I'd kind of, I was missing being able to, you know, to be creative. Um, so I did that just as an outlet while I was teaching, but the, the courses I did with Claire and Mike were his master classes where the aim of it was to kind of produce a work in a year, so non-fiction or fiction. Um, and I just loved this idea that I could do it online in my own time and I could start something and finish something. I also did, I did NaNoWriMo, I don't even know how to pronounce that, the National Novel Writing Month in November, so I did that in 2013 and my daughter was one and I kind of got did the 50,000 words in a month that you're supposed to do. And that was the beginning of Go Away Birds. And I sat on it for four years until 2017 when I did the first course. And by then, the story was in me. It was part of me. The characters were part of me. I knew, you know, I knew them really well. And yeah, so then when it came to doing that course for a year, go away but the first draft of it anyway came really easily and yeah that was it and then I did the second course um, in 2020 <laughs> for my second novel which yeah as you, as you did say in the intro and it's true is going very slowly 
um, so a totally different thing because I didn't have the story until I started the course. Yeah. So, in, in your view, what benefits do being in a writing course like that offer? You know, that differs from sitting at your desk alone and trying to write your first draft like you did with Nano Remo. Well, so the just for me, the biggest value came in having someone to point out plot points that were just never that just don't work, and it's really interesting that. I think we find it so difficult to to kind of evaluate our own work. I can evaluate my own writing, I think. You know, on a sentence level, I know when a sentence works and when it doesn't. There are actually a couple of, there's one sentence in particular in Go Away Goods that I still don't think works, despite the numerous edits that went through, and it still irks me. So I think I can evaluate my writing on a sentence level. That, that is not what I would join this kind of course for and it's a, those courses also don't offer kind of sentence level editing but as a bigger picture in terms of plot points the way things hinge on each other that was really valuable to me to have someone pretty objective just pointing it out and saying this, this doesn't work you need, this needs to be reworked your characters need to get to that point through a different mechanism um, and also just having the submission deadlines really helps. I think it's she's supposed to write about 8,000 words a month, but this course that I did is very flexible. You don't, you don't have to submit if you don't have anything. I always submitted every month because I was so desperate to finish. Um, and that, that definitely helps. I don't know how, honestly, how people who are sitting at their desks by themselves can churn out a whole novel without any kind of maybe they much more self-discipline than I am. I could never set my own deadlines and be like, okay, Michelle, on Tuesday you have to have got your twenty-five thousand words. There's no way I would ever, I would ever do that. I would just never get there. I think we find it easier to let ourselves down than than other people. I think that's absolutely it. And you're talking to someone who has a hundred thousand words of a novel that it needs to be finished, <laughs> and it's just not. Wow. I'm just not getting around to it. So I do think I think what you're talking about is a kind of accountability that writing courses offer you, and um, accountability to yourself yeah. and to put yourself first, which I think is a really feminist thing to do: is to choose to spend your time and money on something that you want and to commit to it it's just it's really fulfilling I, I really love taking writing courses as well so you are talking to the converted <laughs> but you have you did finish yeah. and you have a novel now and so the go away birds which came out in 2021 and it follows the story of sky who's described on the back cover as looking for normal after a childhood that was quite different from the four-person nuclear family that we see in adverts when we meet Sky, it's clear that there's a lot going on, both in the background of her life and in the foreground, and also on an emotional level and just a day-to-day -day things to deal with. But Sky is so determined to seem okay for everyone around her, even at her own expense. She was such an interesting character to read and to follow in her journey through the novel. Tell me about creating Sky and what you wanted to, people to take from her story. Oh, well, thank you so much. I'm so glad that you found her interesting. Um, whenever I 
say what I'm about to say to people. It makes me sound really kind of spiritual and esoteric and kind of wah-wah, but I'm not, I'm not that person. Somehow, Sky and Rory dropped into my consciousness, fully formed. Like those two characters, so Rory is Sky's sister-in-law, who she has a really, really kind of fractious relationship with. There's a lot of friction between them. And they, they arrived as almost like two parts, almost like two parts of a whole or two sides of the same coin. So creating Sky as her own person without Rory, which is what we see of her after she leaves at the end of the first part of the novel. Um, I, I struggled a little with Sky. Um, I knew who she was. She really, she did arrive. I knew it was like she entered my life. I don't, I never sat down to create this character. Um, what I did want to do though was to write about someone who is very calm and pragmatic, very practical, and, and someone who's also really, really independent and has sort of been forced to be independent through her childhood and also having since having left home. And I started wondering and questioning and thinking about what that kind of person would do in response to a trauma. How would that kind of person deal with a trauma? And specifically, how would that kind of woman deal with a trauma? She wouldn't talk about it openly, for one thing. She probably wouldn't seek help either because she's so used to being independent and because she's so independent she really struggles to let people close so she wouldn't probably have anyone close to talk to about it and even when she did have someone who was close to her she she wouldn't talk about it it's just kind of bury it and get on with her life um so that really fascinated me so i think you you both that character so well because you could anticipate exactly you know you could, I could sense that there was something that had happened with the beginning of the novel that we didn't necessarily know about but you also were very well aware as the reader that this was not a person who, who was going to collapse like Sky was not going to let herself be dramatic about anything even if it was really dramatic um, and I think that's something also that we get taught as women is not to make a scene and that's very deeply ingrained mm-hmm. in a lot of us and I thought it was really powerful the way that you did show it was having an impact even though she wasn't always talking about it. Yeah. Well, I'm, yeah, I'm really glad that came across because she, yeah, she really isn't the kind of person to, to, as you say, to make a scene. But also, she never, never, ever wants to be in the spotlight, and there's this intense sense of discomfort that she has when she is singled out in a group. Um, but I think she gets better and better at, at dealing with it and putting herself in the foreground. Um, in her own, you know, in her own life. And, you know, she's a chef and that was a deliberate choice. Her whole, her whole career and most of her childhood as well was about, you know, feeding others, being valuable, making this kind of really essential contribution to her family when she was growing up and then in her career as well. So she was someone who, needed to learn through the course of this novel how to put herself first. 
Yeah, I mean, it's not it's not like she has an easy road of it. It definitely is a bumpy road, and I think that's the the road of like self discovery for all of us. It's never how you think it's gonna go. Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we spoke a little bit earlier about you know the sense of of women's choices and what they're required to do, and there was a, pa- a paragraph that just really jumped out at me. And um, it's a scene where Sky is describing Rory. And she says, there were deep spiderweb cracks radiating out from the heels of her delicate slender feet, and her toenails were long and yellow. How liberating it must be, I thought, to not care about what you look like, not to be constantly grooming and modifying and keeping your body at bay. I was not a glamorous woman, not by a long shot, but there were little improvements I felt compelled to make constantly. My eyebrows, my nails, my heels. And I think so many people reading your book and listening now will have will relate to the sense of having to have a body project in order to be like a serious air quotes here, a normal woman in society, even when you're not trying to be that perfect hyper feminine woman. Is this something that you personally relate to as the writer or was it just something in Sky as the character? Sky and I are similar in one or two ways and that's definitely one of them. Um, this is something I think about a lot. Um, my partner, my husband and I have been together for 16 years and we've lived together for 15 years. So I've, I'm constantly, constantly amazed at the things I feel compelled to do that never, ever enters his, his thoughts. Um, and I'm so used to doing it now. I mean, I've been, we, we're all so used to doing these things, I think. Um, but it's all, kind of ties in with something I feel really passionate about and that's about women becoming aware of the reason that they're doing the things that they do to quote unquote keep their body at bay. Um, I think so little of what we do is about our own pleasure. I think that's hugely, hugely underrated is, is women's pleasure and I'm not only talking about sexual pleasure. I mean you know, just having this kind of contentment, this sense of really kind of physically enjoying yourself. Also why I really love reading romantic fiction because a lot of it is about women seeking pleasure and, and enjoying themselves. And so much of, you know, diet culture and even fitness culture, they, they, they almost are the antithesis of, of seeking pleasure or you know, striving for pleasure. It's the exact opposite. Take the pleasure out of food, take the pleasure out of exercising because everything has to be so kind of, I want to say quantifiable, but I'm not sure if that's right, but everything's very goal-oriented and that goal is never enjoyment or pleasure. And Rory, I think, despite her disordered eating and her, you know, her other issues, she, she is she's aware of what it means to live a life of pleasure, I think, and she doesn't subscribe to any of these other ideals, you know, of, of the way women should look. And I do think that it was important for Sky to realize that. And that's kind of what I meant when I said that they, were, they arrived as almost two sides of the same coin. I think they're very similar in a lot of ways, but Rory is everything Sky is, but sort of, in a more extreme sort of way. Wasn't the only feminist theme in the book. There's there's so many. The influence of strong mothers, the support of 
female friends and strangers and the belief that as a woman you can start over when things are not going well whether it's in your job or your marriage or your friendships did these feminist themes emerge as the story was being written or did you set out to explore them deliberately no they did emerge as the story was being written you know these are things i think about so i think they came through almost subconsciously especially the motherhood theme i think what go away bridge does say quite explicit, almost, almost not quite explicitly, but that is that there is more than one way to be a mother and there's no, no one right way. And Heather and Lola are kind of polar opposites as mothers, but they both were very, very strong parents and really strong figures in their children's lives. There's the neighbor who is a certain kind of mother. Yeah, so the motherhood, that, that emerged naturally, I think. For me, Go Away Birds was always predominantly a story of a woman. It was it was Sky's story, I think. It's very plot driven and I, I I really it sounds strange, but I really don't think I set out to convey any kind of message in any kind of, you know, political or you know, there's there are some political themes as well, but they just kind of came. This kind of they were unavoidable with this story. Like for Sky's, Sky's life and Sky's story could only have played out against the backdrop of, of these really strong feminist themes and political themes. And that was because of her, not because of any message I wanted to get across. And it does come across as quite quite message heavy, which I was a bit I was a bit concerned about. I don't think it's message heavy. I think it's you know, it depends on your level of reader, what you're looking for. You know, I I think it came across as natural things, and the characters were all well developed enough that it didn't feel didactic at all. Um, it was more just an interesting reflection, and especially on mother, like you say, on the different types of motherhood, and and also how satisfied you are with your mother as not only being a reflection of your mother but also of yourself. Because I think Cam and Rory were sort of fine with them. <laughs> For me, it was like a bit of a shit show. <laughs> But you know, it's really about the relationship between two people. Um, and I think moms always get the hard end of the stick because we can complain yeah. as children, you know. Yeah, I think I wanted to present all the, like, loads of different mothers. Mm-hmm. And I think that they're all, they are all redeemed as, as mothers. Like, none of them is, none of them is that kind of perfect mother, except perhaps Lola, but we also have to, be aware that she's being idolized by Sky because you know she's no longer around. Um, I think it was really important to me that all these all these mothers had a redemptive moment and a way for the reader to think like, you know, maybe yeah, maybe she did X Y Z, but this is why, or you know, yeah, complexity. And you have been quite adventurous around the world and you're now back in South Africa again. And I wonder what it's like, been like to come home and whether this has sparked any new themes or interests in your writing of your second novel. My second novel is Party Fest in Zambia. That's where I started writing it. I'm not sure if being home has has affected, has really influenced my writing that much. I think kind of COVID is, is probably part of a reason for that. Um, you know, we haven't really been out 
very much. We've kind of we've seen close family, but that's it. So in a way, I kind of feel like being back home, I could be anywhere, really, um, but not. It is very different to Zambia. But what I will say about the difference between writing my second novel from here is part one of the one of the themes or something I do explore in the novel is the fact that Zambia is one of the countries, one of the many countries in Africa where it's, where it's illegal to be queer. And two of, actually three of the main characters in this manuscript I'm working on are queer. And one of them grew up in Zambia. And I think I'm constantly so grateful being back in South Africa. You know, we have so many problems we don't we don't even have to go into we, we know what our problems are but the one thing we do have is a, and of course there's all kinds of discrimination and there's all prejudice and there's horrific hate crimes but it, you at least cannot you cannot be thrown in jail for being queer in South Africa and that that is something that um really it's kind of this you know the constitution something that I really, really value since having lived in an African country, another African country where they don't have that. So, you know, yeah. that's just kind of something that I'm thinking about a lot. Mm. Not that I'm to take for granted, even despite all the mess. Yeah. We have, you know. yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I mean, our, our constitution is just the most delightful document to read when you start comparing laws all around the country and um, all around the continent we really are very very lucky yeah and and even all around the world yes. you know like in ireland you still can't legally have an abortion mm. and that's ireland you know yeah so yeah that that's so true it's things that i took for granted before that living in another african country is really brought home for me mm. Well, I'm glad that you are still writing and it doesn't matter if the second novel is going very, very slowly. It just matters if it gets finished. So good luck with that. Um, but before we end off our podcast today, I have three last questions that I ask everyone who comes on the podcast. The first is, do you have a book that inspired your feminism? I don't have a single book that did that. The one book that I always think about when I'm considering this question is Cat's Eye by Margaret Atwood one of her older ones and it's about the relationship between two young girls and I always think of this quote when asked about this book she said little girls are only little girls to everyone else to each other and to themselves that's not what they are kind of this idea of you know little girls are harmless and whatever fluffy and pink and sweet and we don't see necessarily what's going on between them because they're kind of written off as being you know harmless and unthreatening so that's a book that i always think of when i think about a book that inspired my feminism but it's, it's not necessarily a feminist text and uh, I also read a lot of women-centered romantic fiction, and I just feel like I could, I want to use every soapbox that I'm afforded to <laughs> shout about the joys of books by Katie McQuiston and 
even Liz Gilbert's City of Girls. Mm. I, I think they're, they're so, so under, criminally, criminally underrated. Um, <laughs> Because they seem, you know, they seem as frivolous and fluffy, and of course there are those, and those are fine. But the really, really good romantic fiction is just objectively good fiction, but with women at the centre, mm. women's pleasure, enjoyment, in the for, like at the forefront, which is kind of a radical act. It shouldn't be in 2021, but putting women's pleasure up front somehow seems quite radical. Yeah, I think uh, any anything that brings you pleasure is a kick in the arse to the patriarchy. So whatever form that takes, it's good enough for me. Do you have a quote that inspires you or that you live by? This is actually from Liz Gilbert's City of Girls, and this is something I think about often. And it says, life is both fleeting and dangerous, and there's no point in denying yourself pleasure or being anything other than what you are. I think that kind of sums up my thoughts on on women, yeah, on what we, how we need to be in the world. That's lovely. And then the final question for today is, do you have any advice for other feminists on their journeys? I really feel, I feel so, so unqualified to give advice to anyone else or to any other feminist. You know, I'm not an academic. My feminism is kind of very, a very practical day-to-day practice. Um, one thing that I always think about is just changing the way I talk to myself, particularly about my own body and kind of just defying the patriarchy every day by by talking to myself differently about my body and in a way also other women's bodies. I think your interview with Dawn Garish on this podcast, she speaks about something similar, about catching moments in your own kind of inner dialogue and how kind of important it is to do that. So that's the only advice I can think of keep listening to the way you talk to yourself. I think it's really, really good advice and a good point to end off on. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast and keep writing and keep the faith. We're really looking forward to your second book. Thanks so much, Jen. I so appreciate this. Thanks so much for tuning into this week's episode of Living While Feminist with me, Jen Thorpe. Please do tune in next week to hear more from feminists about their lives and experiences. Take care of yourselves.